0: This morning we're going to start out by reading John 3, verses 1 through 8. But before I do that, I want to let you know the presuppositions that I come here this morning with. I presuppose that some of you here aren't Christians, and don't know a whole lot about what church is or who Jesus is or what Christianity is all about, and I presuppose that some of you are Christians, and whether you're a new Christian or have been a Christian for most of your life. And I presuppose that some of you think you're Christians and aren't. Those are my presuppositions. And um, I want you to keep them in mind as we go to the word uh, through the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's read John 3, 1 through 8. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. So, who are the Pharisees? Pharisees were religious leaders in the time of Christ. And they were the good religious leaders. Today, we all think Pharisees and we think Pharisaism and we think bad Pharisee, bad At time of Jesus. The Pharisees were the good religious leaders compared to the Sadducees. Sadducees were the bad religious leaders. The difference between them was Pharisees. They believed the Bible, the Old Testament. Sadducees, not so much. Pharisees obeyed the laws in that Bible in the Old Testament. Sadducees, eh, maybe, maybe not. Mostly not. Right? Pharisees taught the people to obey the laws. They went to church or the synagogue, right, every Sabbath, taught the people to do the same. These were good religious leaders. Sadducees, they were... The bad religious leaders, liberals, the real followers of the Jewish faith didn't follow the Sadducees. They followed the Pharisees. All right. So that's who the Pharisees are. Pharisees were very confident of their entry into the kingdom of heaven. Okay, Very confident that they were going to be saved. They believed in the resurrection. Sadducees, they didn't even believe in the resurrection. So it didn't really matter what they believed because there was no afterlife anyway. And so who cared what you did, what you believed? It didn't matter. Pharisees, it really mattered for them. So that's who Nicodemus is. Nicodemus is a Pharisee, ruler, religious, religious. And he's better than most Pharisees because why? Well, because he comes to Jesus in this. And he admits that Jesus is a man of God. Most of the Pharisees, they don't admit that. Pharisees hated Jesus. Why did the Pharisees hate Jesus so much? Well, it was because Jesus had the hearts of the people. People were following Jesus. They loved Jesus. They listened to Jesus. They followed Jesus. And they were not doing those things with the Pharisees anymore. So the Pharisees were jealous in a lot of ways. Now, the weird thing is that a lot of us here, are best described as Pharisees. Okay? A lot of us here are best described as Pharisees. We follow the religious laws. We go to church every Sunday. We believe the Bible. We even secretly come to Jesus every Sunday. You know, we don't tell our co-workers and things... Other people in school and others that don't know. We don't, they don't need to know. But we secretly come to Jesus. And we admit to him every week, you know, yes, we I know that you are from God because you did all these miracles. And so, you've got to be. But, it's not a good thing for me to call us, Pharisees. It's a bad thing. And the reason is because Pharisees actually hated Jesus. And Nicodemus comes secretly. And we come secretly. That's not a good thing. That it says he came at night, obviously hiding this fact that he's coming to Jesus, right? He's admitting this this truth to Jesus that none of the rest of the Pharisees want to admit, which is that it's obvious that Jesus is a man of God. They all know it, because how could he not be doing the things that he's doing? Well, Nicodemus comes, and he has a question for Jesus. He comes secretly, and he wants to ask this question. Now, if you had the opportunity, you were alive at the time of Jesus, and you had the opportunity to come to him privately, just you know one on one, you and him you're going to ask him you something you've got a question you're going to ask him what question would you ask? Maybe it would be a request ask him to do something. What would you say to jesus what would your what would your question be? I was thinking about what questions what some good questions would be that Nicodemus might have asked that we could still ask today, right? Uh, how about <clears throat> how to solve world hunger? Still a problem today? Was a problem then? It's a good question. Nicodemus should have asked. How about for peace in the East? Wasn't peace then? Isn't peace now? I thought that would be a good one. The unity of the church or the believers, right? You've got the division of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the people following after both, and there's this division. There's no unity. Same thing today. Nicodemus could have asked that. So, what question would you ask? You got your question? Okay, you just got interrupted. Because you started out with the introduction to the question by complimenting Jesus. And then he interrupted you. What's he say? Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So how much does that have to do with the question you were just about to ask him? A lot? A little? Depends on your question. Nicodemus doesn't get anywhere, does he? Doesn't ask a question, doesn't make a statement. He just begins talking and Jesus interrupts him and says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. It's kind of rude, isn't it? Would that annoy you? If you were going to ask Jesus something, you are going to tell Him something, you were going to give Him a lecture, you were going to interact with Him in some way that you had planned out, you come to Him at night secretly, you got this big idea. <clears throat> Before you can even get started, He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Well, What's the big importance of that statement? Why is it so important that Jesus is willing to interrupt what we were going to say? To say that. Why must we be born of the Spirit? Well, let's answer that that question first. The reason why we must be born of the Spirit is because We see in verses 5 and 6, we are born of the flesh and are flesh. Well, what does that matter? Well, if Nicodemus refuses to admit that he is born of flesh and is flesh, is he ever going to see his need to be born of the Spirit? Why would he? Ignoring for a second what it means to be born of the spirit. He doesn't want to admit that he has a need of anything. What is his need? Well, Jesus says his need is to be born again, to be born of the spirit. Nicodemus doesn't think he has a need. We don't think we have needs. We don't think we have this need for sure. Turn to Titus 3, verses 3 through 5, and we read that another of the reasons we need to be born again, we need to be born of the Spirit, is because we are sinners. I'm going to read that now. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, deceived enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. If we never admit that we are sinners, never confess our sin to one another or to God, will we ever truly believe that it's not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness that we are saved? That's so what those verses said, right? It wasn't on the basis of our own righteousness, deeds that we had done in righteousness, that we are saved some other way. But if we never admit that we're sinners, if we never confess our sins to each other, if we never confess our sin to God, well, we obviously don't think that we have any need to be born again, any need to be reborn of the Spirit instead of of the flesh. We're like Nicodemus. We naturally desire to trust our own righteous Deeds. Deeds that we have done in righteousness. But the truth is, according to this verse and the entire rest of the Bible, that we are sinners, not righteous. And so when the verse says, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, it's not just saying The deeds that you have done in righteousness didn't save you. It's saying you have done no deeds in righteousness. You have no deeds in righteousness. Why do I say that? Well, look back at Titus 3. What does it say at the beginning? Verse 3. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. Does that describe you? Does that describe who you know yourself to be? You Look at Romans 2, verses 14 and 16. It says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, so it's saying, you know, when people who aren't Christians, when people who don't, aren't believers, who aren't Jews, don't know anything about this, instinctively do what the law requires, they become, these not having the law, are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. And then you skip over to chapter 3 and we read what then? Are we better than they? Are we better than the Gentiles? The non-believers? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous Not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. So we are sinners. And God requires righteousness. And he will judge us. If you were here last week, you remember that the first sermon in this series on the Holy Spirit was about how the Holy Spirit comes, is sent by God to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and the judgment. That's what we see here in these verses that I've just been reading. If you don't recognize the truth of these verses... The Holy Spirit has not begun to convict you of sin. If you aren't convicted of sin, you aren't convicted of righteousness or the judgment either. But if you recognize yourself in these passages that I just read. Then the Holy Spirit has been doing the work of convicting you. Of sin. Convicting you of righteousness. Convicting you of the judgment to come. Examine yourself and see whether that work has been done in you. Examine yourself to see if the Holy Spirit has taken out your heart of stone and given you a heart of flesh. Examine yourself To see whether you have been born of the Spirit. Whether you have been regenerated. Now what is regeneration? Jumping back, it's asking the question, what does Jesus mean by you must be born again? We saw the word regeneration in the Titus passage that we read. That's the only place in the Bible where the word regeneration shows up, but the idea of regeneration shows up all through the Bible. And We're going to read a whole bunch of passages real quickly here in a minute that describe that same work of regeneration that the Holy Spirit does in us. But first, what exactly does the word regeneration mean? Well, I looked up the Greek word for regeneration, and the Greek word was regeneration, basically. It was the word again, which means which which we say re when we stick it on the front of a word, right? It's the word again stuck on the front of generation or generate. Well, what does generate mean? Well, it means to be made, right? When you generate electricity, you make it. When you generate a foul stench, you make it, right? This is, this is the word generation, to be generated. It happens. It's, it's an act that is done. And then regeneration just means again, to be generated again. So if that's what the word regeneration means, then we've got a bit of a problem. But before we get to that problem, I want to read you some other passages where we read of this concept of being regenerated. Okay listen for the words that are similar to regeneration What what types of words would be similar to regeneration Well made new You see how that's like regeneration being made again being renewed being reborn being made alive, all of these things are ways that you could, are alternate words that you could use to talk about regeneration. So let me read some of them to you from Ephesians 2, 5. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Ephesians 4, 24. And put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Or 2 Corinthians 5.17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. James 1.18, in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. Galatians 6.15, For neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Colossians 2.13, When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. So what is regeneration? Well I read one definition of regeneration that I thought was the simplest and most accurate. It was Martin Lloyd Jones and he said that it was that regeneration is the implanting of new life in the soul. The implanting of new life in the soul. Very good definition, very simple, very easy to remember. Okay? Regeneration is the implanting of new life in the soul. And this new life in the soul leads to a radical way, radical change in the way we live our life. Okay? Regeneration changes something deep within you. It changes something about you. It changes something that you make decisions with that you have desires with, it changes something about who you are. Does that make sense? Who you are is different after you have been regenerated. I'm not talking about conversion. Those of us who are Christians or have been in the church for a long time often get these two things confused. Conversion and regeneration are two separate things. Okay? Conversion is after regeneration. Regeneration is something that happens to you at a point in time, very suddenly. And it's done by the Holy Spirit. Now, let me give you an example of regeneration. There's a great example in the New Testament. And uh, it's the story of Saul on the road to Damascus. On the road to Damascus, Saul is going down to persecute the Christians, right? It says that he's muttering under his breath about death and destruction for the christians that's who paul is saul rather at that time okay and he's on the road to damascus and suddenly there's a bright light a blinding light and a voice out of heaven says saul saul why are you persecuting me at that point saul is changed he goes on to Damascus and he doesn't persecute the Christians. Something in him has completely changed. He has been regenerated. Now, I had a professor at school one time who was teaching a course on uh, Christianity and Judaism and Islam. You could call it a comparative religion course, but it was in the classics department. And uh he was talking about Saul. And he said to the class, what happened to Saul on the road to Damascus? And there was this one very smart person in the class who raised their hand and gave a very intelligent explanation of how Saul had had an epileptic seizure. And that it's very common for epileptic seizures to result in temporary blindness. And my professor, who is an agnostic, said, well, you may be right that epileptic seizures frequently result in temporary blindness, but I've never heard of an epileptic seizure ending in somebody completely changing their life. You see, something's changed about Saul. He's different afterwards. Regeneration changes something deep inside you. Something that makes you go from hating God and hating His law and hating Christians, hating Jesus, to not. Just like that. You're an enemy. And then you're not. You've been changed somehow. The really annoying thing is that it's impossible for us to accomplish our own regeneration. And I say it's annoying because we really all want to accomplish our own regeneration. But the Holy Spirit is the one who does the work of regeneration in us, not us. According to Titus 3, which we read, you remember it says that prior to regeneration, we are what? Enslaved and deceived. How can we regenerate ourselves if we're enslaved and deceived? The Bible is full of this imagery of being of us being dead in our trespasses and sins. What can a dead man do? Seriously, what can a dead man do? Anyone ever see a dead man do anything? A dead man can do nothing. That's kind of the definition of being dead, right? It's a fairly accurate one anyway. Anyway. Dead men can't do anything. And so when the Bible talks about us being dead in our transgressions, it's trying to get a point across. The Holy Spirit is speaking to us and saying, you are dead in your transgressions. He's not just saying, you are dead in your transgressions. He's saying, you can do nothing. That's what being dead is. Not able to do anything. Where do we see this imagery? I love the picture that we see in Ezekiel. Turn there to chapter 37, if you would. I love the description we have of the Lord making alive. And that's the beauty is that we can't do anything because we're dead. But God can call Lazarus, the dead man, out of the tomb and make him alive. Let's read this. In Ezekiel 37, we're going to start at verse 1. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley, and it was full of bones. He caused me to pass among them round about, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and lo, they were very dry. Okay, what's the point? of describing the valley as full of dead, dry bones. Or rather, of dry bones. The point is that they're not just dead, they're very dead. Right? They're not just very dead, but they have been dead, very dead for a long time. And lo, they were very dry. He said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? It's a question. Can these bones live? We're dead in our transgressions. Can we live? How does Ezekiel answer? He says, I answered, O Lord God, you know. Again, he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O oh, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you that you may come to life. I will put sinews on you, make flesh grow back on you, cover you with skin and put breath in you that you may come alive and you will know that I am the Lord. And skipping to verse 13, he says, When I have opened your graves and caused you to come up out of your graves, my people, I will put my spirit within you and you will come to life and I will place you on your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and what? Done it. The Lord has spoken and has done it. Not you. You were dead, rotted, and dried. The Lord spoke it, and you were made alive. Without the Holy Spirit, we are enemies of God. It's not just that we're at war with God, though so we could choose to not be at war anymore. It's that God hates our sin and there's nothing we can do about it. We're enemies who can't do anything about being enemies. We can't decide to not be enemies anymore. Because why? Because of the judgment. Our sin keeps us from being at peace with God. Now, how does Nicodemus respond to Jesus? Remember back in John where we were reading before? How does Nicodemus respond? Nicodemus responds the exact same way that we respond. What? What is this, some kind of cruel joke, born again. I've done everything I can. I've followed the laws. I go to church. I do everything I'm supposed to do. And now you tell me to be born again. Okay, first of all, that's just impossible. I can't. Second of all, well, what do you want me to do? Go back and like, go in a womb again? That's Nicodemus' response. That's our response. And the funny thing is, he's right. We can't. That's what I just got done explaining to all of us. right? We can't. We can't bear ourselves again. We can't regenerate ourselves. You know, on a scale of 1 to 10, how much did you have to do with your own conception? Your first generation. Right? How much did you have to do with it? Little? Anyone? A lot? How about, you know, nothing? Anyone? Now, how about your second generation? How much do you expect to have to do with your second generation, your second conception, your second birth? You're going to have a lot to do with that? We can't. Nicodemus is exactly right. It's not something that we can just do. But it's how we think. If Jesus says we have to be born again, it must be something I can do. And this is why we get conversion confused with regeneration, because we think you must be born again, and that means you must pray the sinner's prayer. That's not what regeneration is. Regeneration is being changed by the Holy Spirit, and it comes prior to your conversion. It's an instantaneous thing. It happens. Suddenly you are different. And it's done to you by the Holy Spirit. Every reference to this change that takes place in us leaves us passive and God the Holy Spirit active, acting on us. Did you you notice that as I was reading all those verses? They were all things that happened to us. Not things that we did. God made us new. God recreated us. He regenerated us. He took out our heart of stone and gave us a heart of flesh. In Ezekiel 36, we read another reference. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. These are the words of God describing his work within us. Not our work within us. Now Jesus goes on to tell John. In the passage that we read. That the spirit is the one who will do this work. Do you remember that? He describes that. Do not be amazed that I said To you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. We're there. The Spirit comes, changes us, acts upon us, and we're different. We know the results. We see the results. We feel the results of the Spirit at work within us. We don't hear the results and then make the results. Right? Spirit comes, acts upon us, and we are changed. And we know that we have been changed. Have you been changed by the Holy Spirit? Was there ever a point in your life where you went from being the enemy, from having the heart of stone, from being flesh to having a heart of flesh. Was there ever a point where that happened? Now that point may not be extremely obvious to all of us. But you can tell that it has happened. We feel the effects. You can look at yourself today and say, that change has been worked in me by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit does this work. His own will on whoever He wants, whenever He wants. And that's the awesome, awesome, awesome power of God. Because I just got done explaining to us that we can't do anything of this work that needs to happen in us on our own. we can't even desire it to happen on our own without the Holy Spirit causing that desire to be within us. And so, the beauty of it is that we don't, not only can we not do it, but we don't need to do it. The Holy Spirit does it. And He does it as He chooses. Now, Those of us here who say we are Christians must examine ourselves to make sure that we aren't Nicodemus. Relying on the day in, day out works that we do to think that we've been regenerated. Examine your heart See whether this work has been done in you by the Holy Spirit. He is not interested in the works of the flesh. Those of us who do not claim to be Christians must be born again. Just like those of us who do claim to be Christians but aren't. Must be born again. And so is it hopeless? Jesus says, you must be born again. And then he says, but the Holy Spirit does it. It's not hopeless. Because if you desire it, if you see your sin, if you recognize the hopelessness of your situation, if you know that the judgment is coming, What are those things? Those are evidence that the Holy Spirit is at work within you. If the Holy Spirit is at work within you, He can regenerate you. You can't. He can. Luke 11, 9-13 says, So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Now suppose one of you fathers is asked by his son for a fish he will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? Or if he is asked for an egg, he will not give him a scorpion, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? How much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Let's pray for the Holy Spirit.